0: Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Thank you, Dr. Sachs, for that kind introduction and for you all for your welcome. It's great to be here, always good to be uh, kind of A home field advantage a little bit to be in chapel at Southeastern, Uh, and so thank you for being here, for joining us online uh, as well. It's always a privilege to get to share God's Word with you in this capacity. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, as Dr. Shaddix was uh, mentioning uh, by way of my uh, bio, uh, I am a native of North Carolina. In fact, I grew up uh, on the coast. I grew up in Wilmington down by the beach, and I used to love to go to the beach. Went to the beach all the time. Uh, I, I, in fact, felt like I had more fins and gills than I did arms and legs sometimes because I used to just swim in the ocean. Uh, we would jump waves, we would ride waves. Me and my best friend, we would we would swim out into the ocean even just to make the lifeguard sweat a little bit. We would swim out around the end of the pier. We just did all kinds of stuff. We would fish in the ocean. We loved to spend time in the ocean. And then I realized that beyond just the recreational fun of being in the ocean, there was uh, even some other benefits To the ocean. I figured out that if I had kind of a a cut or a scratch, like on my knee or on my foot, or maybe if I had some other kind of irritation or a a floor burn from a basketball court or something like that, man, just go swim in the ocean and in, in a day or two, it seemed like it would be cleared up. I even found out when I got older and these things began to matter, that if I uh, I had a blemish, you know, kind of one of those big unsightly things in the middle of your forehead, and you needed it to clear up by the weekend, just go swim in the ocean, and it would clear up. It was remarkable how this would work. But you know what I never did? I, I, I never, when I had one of those kind of issues, I never stuck my elbow or my forehead down in a sink of water. I didn't do that. No, no, I had to go to the ocean because ocean water and sink water, or stand in the shower, shower water is different. What is it that makes ocean water, ocean water? What makes ocean water is what? The salt, you guys all knew that just intuitively. You knew I wasn't setting you up. In fact, you gave me the answer I was looking for. It's salt, right? What makes ocean water, ocean water is the salt within it and I want you to understand something this morning just like you can't dip or or, or isolate a single drop of water from the ocean that's not saturated with salt when it comes to the core doctrines of what we believe when it comes to the the gospel there's no element of the gospel that can be isolated that's not infused with God's grace in fact the gospel itself is defined by grace and apart from grace it's not the gospel Paul's whole letter to the Galatians is about that very point. And when it comes to the gospel, this gospel of grace, perhaps there's no better passage in all of scripture than Ephesians chapter 2 that defines for us and explains to us the nature of this grace. You say, well, why is this important? I'll tell you why it's essential. Because when we begin to kind of remove or extract the grace from the gospel, we find uh, our churches filled with people who are trying to earn their salvation, even to earn what Christ did for them. We, we find our, our churches filled with people who are trying to maintain their salvation. We find our churches filled with people who maybe are overwhelmed with uh, discouragement because they're trying to turn the spiritual corner in their life, but they just can't seem to, to make the progress they want to because they keep stumbling over their best efforts because we've removed or extracted grace from the gospel. Some people are overwhelmed by shame and by guilt because. They've forgotten or misunderstood or never understood the grace of the gospel. It's essential that we understand this. And in this passage, Paul gives us a a full understanding of the nature of the gospel of grace. He answers several important questions that we might want to look for as we read this and then listen for as we hear this message. For instance, he answers the question, why do we need grace? How does grace actually work? What even is grace? And what difference does it make? All four of those questions, I want you to hear it again, all four of those questions are answered in this passage. Why do we need grace? How does grace actually work? What is grace? And what difference does it make? So if you find your place there in Ephesians chapter two, let's understand what God wants us to learn and remind ourselves, perhaps, even of what it is that this, this gospel of grace Starting in chapter 2, verse 1 of the letter to the Ephesians, the Bible says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, in christ jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not of your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them would you pray with me Heavenly father we thank you for the eternal truth of your word We thank you, God, for its relevance in our own lives, and we thank you, God, how it not only gives us understanding, but gives us the guidance of how to respond. And so, Father, I pray that you would rest the attention of our hearts, Father, that we would hear your voice speak through your word today, Father, that we would submit ourselves to its authority, that it would triumph over our opinions or our desires, our wants, Father, that it would... Have authority in our lives, and that we would respond by grace accordingly. Teach us now through your word, by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, in this passage, uh, what you see really is what I would call three different dimensions of grace. You could almost outline them in kind of a, a past, present, and future, or a before. During and after type of sequence because that's really how this passage kind of unfolds and how the topic and subject itself is approached But as we look at this I want us to see these dimensions that give us a deeper understanding and a full understanding of the grace of God and the gospel of Grace first truth. We see in this passage. We need to understand is that before grace We are miserably lost before grace. We are miserably lost now, the first few verses of this passage would not really uh, jive together today with, with things that are politically correct. It wouldn't uh, sound like what the culture uh, wants us to believe about people or what society would tell us to believe about ourselves. In fact, maybe uh, our society's position is best summarized in a song that came out, a country song that came out uh, just a few years ago in 2018. By an artist that you would probably recognize by the name of Luke Bryan of American Idol fame and country music fame. And this song actually uh, rose to number one on the country charts in 2018. And since then it has sold over a million copies as a single. It's gone platinum. And the title of this song was, I Believe Most People Are Good. There's a lot of different things within that song that contradict scripture. But the truth of the, t- the title of the song is exactly opposite of what the truth of scripture teaches. In fact, in Romans uh, 3.10, the Bible tells us there is no one good, not even one. Luke Bryan may be a good country artist, but he's not a good theologian. The Bible tells us that before grace, we are, in fact, miserably lost. And in this passage, what Paul does, these first few verses, he identifies us with three phrases, if you will, that characterize this miserable and lost condition. The first uh, thing that we see in verse one is that we are dead. Right we are dead, but you were dead in the trespasses and sins We know because he's talking about trespasses and sin that he's speaking of a spiritual death But also because in the beginning phrase of verse 2 he says in which you once walked you were in fact a dead man walking You were the literal walking dead. We were living in a spiritually dead state This is important because it goes all the way back to the beginning of the bible and our understanding of of sin Right where, where God creates the world and he establishes the garden and he, he makes uh, Adam and Eve and he puts them there, gives them some guidance as to how they should uh, rule and reign in the garden and, and the things they should do. And then the one thing they shouldn't do, that you should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then comes the serpent in chapter 3 where he begins to kind of undermine uh, God's command to them. And he even raises the question, and what does he base this question on? Surely you will not die. But we know that when they were tempted, they uh, ultimately gave in and, and sinned and rebelled against God, and they took the fruit and they ate, and at that moment, they died. Well, they didn't fall over dead as a, as a corpse in the garden, but spiritually, their lifeline, they were created in the image of God, and that which they had as a, as a relational uh, kind of lifeline to God was then severed. So their oxygen supply, their blood flow, it was cut off. Their spiritual umbilical cord was cut. And because of that, in in Romans chapter 5, it says, through one man, through Adam, sin reigned in all of us. In other words, we are all spiritually stillborn. We are dead. But that's only the first way he describes us. He says our miserable condition only gets worse from there. We weren't just dead, we are deceived. Before grace, we are deceived. Look at what he says in verse 2. He said, in which you once walked in this deadness of sin, following. Now, he's going to identify three things we're following. And this term, following, literally means that you were being controlled by. You were being misled by. You were deceived. These were guiding you and steering you in the wrong direction. And even if you thought you were going in the right direction, you were going in the wrong direction. What were we following? He says, you were following the course of the world. This describes the values of the world and what the world tells us we should be pursuing. But the world flips everything that God's Word says. In fact, it calls what's right wrong and what's wrong right. And it convinces us to agree with it. And therefore, Paul tells us in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. But before grace, we ultimately were deceived and following the course of the world. Look what else we were following. We weren't just following the course of the world. He says you were following, you were being misled and controlled by the prince of the power of the air, the enemy himself, working in the sons of disobedience, as he explains, but working in this world. And later on in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he will tell them in chapter six that we're not waging war against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. And as he describes it here, this this author of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, deceives us and misleads us. He's not sovereignly controlling our lives, but he's enticing us and appealing to the sinful nature that we have. And in doing so he misleads us and guides us and this spirit that is also what he says now at work in the sons of disobedience what we were are sons of disobedience we couldn't do anything but disobey everything was understood and, and revealed to be rebellion against god we were sons of disobedience because we were being deceived we thought we might have been heading in the right direction but we were heading in the opposite direction we weren't walking towards god we were walking away from god and he says among those whom we all once lived now he identifies the third kind of uh, misleading deceptive influence that highlights for us that we're not just dead and we're not just deceived we are ultimately depraved we're depraved he says among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of our body and our mind and were by nature this is who we were in our essence that we were enslaved to these uh, distorted desires, these sinful passions, and they were controlling us and misleading us. So the world, the prince of the power of the air, our own flesh were all leading us away, that we were dead, that we were deceived, that we were depraved by nature, children of wrath. This means that we were born with an obstinance towards God. We were born with kind of a rebellious, resistant spirit towards God. We were children of wrath. There was this hostility between us and God, but we were also objects of God's wrath, right? That God's wrath in our sinful state was directed towards us. It wasn't just you and it wasn't just me. He says, in fact, it was like the rest of mankind, meaning that this is a universal problem. Before grace, we are miserably lost. This morning, by way of just reflective application in these first few verses I wonder if you're reading them as he's writing to those who then were saved he's writing in a past tense this was true of you but perhaps this morning you're sitting here or watching here and you would recognize that's not what I was that's what I am I pray that the gospel of God's grace would begin to penetrate and pierce the darkness in your heart that you might be convicted and aware of your sinful miserable lostness so that the rest of this passage may unfold the light of the gospel that can redeem you perhaps you're here this morning and you recognize that you were kind of in that condition but it's hard to line up your lifestyle with what that describes maybe you were saved at a young age maybe you were raised in church maybe you lived a somewhat wholesome life even before you came to Christ, at least you never detoured down the the, the path of of total depravity. You never kind of went into those real obvious forms of sinfulness. And you have a hard time understanding that that you weren't quite that bad. But I'll share with you a story that Jesus shared to help us understand this point, that we need to be reminded of this. So in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is sitting around with some Pharisees, and he's having dinner with them. And in walks this, this lady who had the reputation as a sinner, In other words, she was known specifically for her sinful lifestyle. And as she walks in, she she begins to lean over Jesus' feet and weep. And she's gushing, literally gushing tears over his feet. And as she's weeping over his feet, she begins to anoint him with this, this costly perfume and the, the, the religious leaders are are kind of uh, repulsed by this. They they see this, and, and in their hearts, and Simon, the one whose house, who was hosting the kind of the meal, he's, he's kind of struggling with this inside, and Jesus can see it in his heart and on his face. He knows what's going on in his mind. And he says, hey, Simon, let me ask you a question. And Simon says, sure, sure, teacher. And he says, suppose, and so he paints this kind of a parable this picture if you will he says suppose there was a man who had two people who owed him money and one owed him 50 denarii and one owed him 500 and he decided that for both of them he was going to forgive both of their debts which one of them would love the man more and as he asked the question simon feels somewhat trapped because he knows he's being set up but he doesn't know any way to escape it and he says well i suppose the one who he was forgiven more Jesus' point to Simon was not, well, she loves me more because she's been forgiven more. His point to Simon was, she loves me more because she realized she needed forgiveness more. And it's the same forgiveness you need. For us, this heightens our appreciation and the gratitude of our salvation. When we recognize the miserable state that we were rescued out of, when we don't kind of minimize it and say well I wasn't quite as bad as I could have been or but maybe as bad as somebody else was or I look back and how could I have really known better I can kind of blame it on my, my family or the circumstances I was raised in or any of those types of things no we all were in the same miserable state of lostness therefore we should be even more grateful and rejoice and celebrate even more over our salvation one point final point of just kind of applicational reflection when we consider kind of this miserable state of lostness, perhaps we would consider the world around us. And it would give us a greater understanding of the condition they're in. Because let's be honest, the aroma of death and the stench of sin disgusts us. And yet in that disgust, may God give our hearts compassion for those who are spiritually dead, deceived, and depraved that they need God to interrupt their lives with his grace the way he interrupted ours. Before grace, we are miserably lost. Second truth we see in this passage, the second dimension of grace, by grace, we are mercifully saved. By grace, we are mercifully saved. God does interrupt into our lives and he interrupts this passage here at the beginning of verse four. Notice there this two-word kind of phrase, but God. Now, The contrast is obvious, that the depths of our depravity is only exceeded by the heights of his holiness, that his character is in contrast to ours, but God. But I want you to notice what the but does, because but doesn't erase everything he said. See, we use it that way, that, that we would say, well, all these things are true, but don't really think about that. Think about this. That's actually not what happens here. The but is actually meant to accentuate, so where we fully understand what he just said, and he doesn't dismiss it, and he doesn't diminish it. He says, this is true, but God lets you in on a little secret. In the original language, the first seven verses of this passage are one sentence. The first three verses that we read are just kind of an introductory phrase or clause that sets it up to the primary subject of the sentence, which is God. And in us, for most of our English translations, there's a period at the end of verse 3. But God never meant for our sinful state to end with a period. There was always more to come. But God. God intervenes and he interjects, interrupts our lives with this understanding of grace. How does he do that? How does grace work? Because if we understand, why do we need grace? Verse 1 through 3 clearly explained it to us. Well, then how does grace work? Verse 4 through 7 explains it, explains it to us and makes it clear. First thing God does to kind of mercifully save us is he displays his love through Christ. He displays his love through Christ. Look in verse 4 what he says. But God, being rich in mercy... He uses a superlative here. He's rich. He has it in abundance. He could never exhaust the mercy he has. In fact, in Lamentations 3, it tells us that this mercy is renewed every morning. God who is rich in mercy. And what is mercy? It's God not giving us what we deserve. And we saw in the first three verses that we deserve God's worst. But in his mercy, he doesn't give it to us. And what we'll see is in his grace, he gives us his best. But God being rich in mercy, watch this, because of the great love. Another superlative here. The great love, the overwhelming, the abounding love that he has for us. God, being rich in mercy, because of this great love with which he loved us, he demonstrated this love. Verse 5: Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we would recognize this and maybe even hear an echo of what we know as Romans 5:8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners even while we were dead in our trespasses. God sent his son to die for us. The Bible explains it this way in 1 John 4.10. It says that in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfying atonement for our sin. God displays his love through christ it was necessary because we are are the objects god's wrath is directed at us in our sinful state but by grace god interjects and intervenes by placing christ as our substitute where he absorbs that wrath that was directed and meant for your sin and mine god displays his love through christ and in this he mercifully saves us but it's not just that he displays his love through christ god unites our life to christ He unites our life to Christ. Watch how this works now. God saved us even when we were dead in our transgressions because of the great love with which he loved us. Because he is rich in mercy, he did what? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What saved you? What saved me? Grace. Grace, undeserved, unmerited favor From God saved us. And this is how salvation works. He notes it in three different verbs here. I want you to watch this in verse five. He says he made us alive. In verse six, it says that he raised us up. And in verse six, he says he seated us. And each one of those verbs that he made us alive, he raised us up and he seated us, all are followed by this same phrase, this preposition with him, with Christ, with him, with uh, him. We are alive together with Christ. We are raised up with him and we are seated with him why is that so important well perhaps we can understand it with the term there that he uses this preposition as we translate it kind of actually is where we get our word sync kind of the prefix like to synchronize something to take your phone and hook it up to your computer and synchronize it here's what he does he syncs our life together with christ by grace, he saved us because he made us alive in him. He has given us new life because in Christ's death, he gives us life. And then he has raised us up with him, the power of the resurrection, and then exalted us, seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, to understand this, rewind just a little bit. Look back up in your page. Maybe you got to turn back a page. Look in chapter 1 as he's speaking and praying for the Ephesians that they would know the power of God and the hope of the gospel. Look in verse 20. He says, This power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Do you hear what's going on in the text here? What he's done in Christ, he's now done in us as he synced our lives together. But watch verse 21 far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now listen to this. The things that in our previous state had control over us, the world, the prince of the power of the air, and our own flesh are now conquered in Christ. And we now share in his authority to have the power to say no to those things. We've been made alive and we've been given the power to no longer be deceived. Therefore, we can overcome our depraved state because our life has been synced together with Christ. All for what purpose? He says, look, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our positional standing before God. That's where we abide. Verse 7, for what purpose? So that in the coming ages, that's for all eternity, he might show, he would display the immeasurable riches of his grace. This immeasurable riches is now a double superlative, right? The immeasurable, abundant, uh, kind of of unfathomable. You can't even express it. I can't even struggle. How can you get any higher than the immeasurable riches of his grace? given to us in kindness in Christ Jesus when the Bible describes our salvation it happens because he displays his love through Christ and he unites our life to Christ and when he does that it all begins with this interruption but God you know the whole message of the Bible is in some ways summarized in these two words you can rewind to again that sinful uh, fall if you will In Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve sinned had no way to make it right but God provided a sacrifice and covered their sin God called Abraham to to go and he was gonna make a great nation of him but Abraham and Sarah were too advanced in age and couldn't have children on their own but God Joseph was sold uh, into slavery by his brothers he was falsely accused of a crime he was imprisoned but God Moses was living on the backside of a desert in the shame of his past, not feeling like he was useful to God at all. But God used him to deliver his people, gets him out of Egypt and they get out there by the Red Sea surrounded by Pharaoh's army. But God. Esther was raised up and and while she's kind of living, she's being schemed against and plotted against and and she doesn't feel like she has the the ability to, to be used by God at that point. But God. Fast forward to the New Testament, you see it as well, right? The, the man born blind who had no uh, prospect of being able to see, but God gave him sight. The, the, the lame man uh, who couldn't walk, but God made him leap, right? The little girl who was dead, but God raised her to life. Lazarus who's in the tomb, but God brought him out. The whole message of the Bible is filled in with this, but God. And do you realize that God is still about this business today of interrupting our lives? Let me tell you why you need to hear this, because there are some of you who are here today or maybe watching online who are enslaved to sexual sin and you feel like there's no way out, but God, he can set you free. Some of your hearts are embittered against people who have hurt you, people who have mistreated you, but God can free you from the shackles of hatred and bitterness in your heart. Some of you are overwhelmed and discouraged, and you, you've been victimized in some form or fashion, but God can give you hope. Some of you don't know which direction you're, you're called to go in life, and you're just trying to find your way, but God can give you purpose. God is all about interrupting our lives with the truth of the gospel of grace. He intervenes and he interrupts. Through his love with Christ, through Christ and sinking our lives in Christ, we are mercifully saved third truth of the gospel of grace not only before grace are we miserably lost and by grace are we mercifully saved beneath grace we are miraculously changed beneath grace we are miraculously changed when you begin to look at this passage i, I want you to recognize kind of the the transformation that happens and how it happens that we would see in these final few verses that God has been kind of working through this grace to bring about something that's transforming our lives. And when we talk about what grace is, yes, we can say that it's God's unmerited favor, but that describes grace by way of the action. But what defines grace is the nature of God Himself that God is merciful and gracious, abounding in loving kindness that grace is primarily and fundamentally a characteristic, an attribute of God that leads to his actions and affections towards us. And this attribute of God just flows from who he is. And so what God does is he positions us between the, uh, beneath the life-changing grace of his kindness and his mercy and his love. And he transforms us And there's been a transformation that's been going on. In in verse 1, we saw that we were spiritually dead. But did you notice in verse 5 that we are made alive? In verse 3, we were called children of wrath. We were objects of God's wrath. But all of a sudden, he is pouring out on us. He's lavishing on us his mercy, his love, his kindness. And here in the final few verses, he undoes the one in verse 2 that we were sons of disobedience to help us understand how our life is now transformed. And it's beneath the flow of grace as we position ourselves there that God works and changes our life. Look at verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. He said this in verse 5 to help us understand that grace was the heartbeat of it all. And God's work was done by grace. Now he's going to help us understand from our end we must recognize that not just from God's end was it by grace, but our end too. By grace you have been saved, and he adds this phrase now, through faith. How do we receive grace? It's simply by trusting in what God has already done for us, not what we can do for ourselves. And here's what he explains to us, that apart from Christ, our good works are futile. Apart from Christ, our good works are futile. He says, and this is not of your own doing. In other words, you didn't manufacture it, you didn't make it happen, you didn't deserve it, you weren't worthy, it's a gift of God. All of salvation his sacrificial death on the cross of Christ, uh, our own faith, all of it is a gift. That's the nature of God's grace being given to us. But then he explains, it's not a result of work so that no one can boast. It's not like we can just do enough good works prior to salvation to kind of uh, get advanced standing, right? Where God doesn't have to come quite so far to save us, we think of ourselves kind of on a, on a on a tri like this little toddler on a tricycle maybe you don't think of yourself exactly like this but it would be like a little toddler on a tricycle who just can't quite push the pedals far enough to get it to go and he's kind of rocking back and forth and you just needed god to just give you a little push it's like okay yeah there now i can ride you just need it no 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 you, you couldn't even get on the bike You certainly couldn't move the pedals. It's not by works, but we think that these works give us advanced standing. And then even after we've been saved, we somehow think that these works are going to, our best efforts will somehow merit God's favor or good standing. It says, apart from Christ, good works are futile so that no one can boast. In other words, it's not just so we could brag against each other. We have no reason to brag before God. This is why Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, God forbid that I should boast except the cross of my lord jesus christ through whom i've been crucified to the world and the world to me let me tell you how this works when it comes to kind of our good works and what they don't merit before god imagine if you will that you got a job at a t-shirt factory okay you're working a t-shirt factory your first day on the job and 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 all of a sudden you kind of get the hang of it you begin to think man i'm really good at this and you start cranking the shirts out And I mean, you're doing everything exactly right. The size of the shirts, the different color schemes, all the logos on the shirt, they're straight. All of this is exactly right. And you start just kind of cranking the shirts out and you're folding them and you're just stacking them up over here. You're just creating stacks of all these shirts that you've made. And you're so proud of that stack. Here comes the end of the day and your boss walks in at the end of the day to kind of check him to see how you've done. Man, you're proud as a peacock. You're sitting there and you're thinking, look at all that I've done. He looks at it, flips through the shirts a little bit and says, yeah, we can't use you anymore. You're fired. So, what are you talking about? I've been working harder than everybody else. I've done more than anybody else could have done. I, I've, I've, I've done my best, and it's, it's been great. It's produced. Look at all the good things I've done. He says, let me see your hands. And you fold them over, and you didn't realize that on your thumb, right, there was an ink blot. And every shirt you touched was stained with this ink. And so now what you thought was actually working in your favor is now a detriment. All the good things you've done have now piled up against you as mistakes, errors. Why? Because they were all stained. And in the same way, apart from Christ, every good work we do is stained with sin. It doesn't work in our benefit, it works to our detriment. Apart from Christ, good works are futile. But watch this, by faith in Christ good works become fruitful by faith in christ good works become fruitful he says in verse 10 now for we are his workmanship and this is quite honestly a beautiful word right in fact some people think that we get our word poem from this word because in ancient literature this term workmanship was used to describe kind of works of art whether they were artistic kind of renderings or or, uh, literature, uh, it describes this. And it's actually used in Scripture elsewhere, too. In Romans 1.20, it says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal nature and divine power, have been clearly seen through what has been made, so that all men are without excuse. And what God has made is it's radiated and displayed his character. He now says, that's what you are. You are his workmanship. And now instead of being sons of disobedience, we are created for what purpose? For good works. In Christ Jesus, through faith in him and what he's done on our behalf, now our efforts are sanctified to where now everything is stained with grace. Created for good works. What are these good works? They certainly are obedience to God's word, things that we would say we should do or we shouldn't do and making sure that we're complying with those things. But they have more to do with uh, virtue as the character of our salvation is lived out, that it's not us working for our salvation, but our salvation working for us. Philippians 2 describes it this way, that it's God working within us both to will and to do good works according to his pleasure. As these salvation works out, it it looks more like the the works of the the fruit of the spirit, where it's more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control all of these fruit of the spirit that are manifested within us these become the good works which watch this god prepared beforehand this was always god's design this was always his intention that we would radiate his character that we would be missional in that nature trophies of his grace that we would display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness as his workmanship through good works that he prepared in advance watch this that we should walk in them I don't know if you noticed this, but he just put the other bookend up on the shelf. Because in verse one and two, he says, in your previous state, these are the things that you once walked in. But because of grace, these are the things that God has prepared in advance that you should walk in. Our life has been changed. It's been been transformed. Before grace, we're miserably lost. By grace, we're mercifully saved. And beneath this flow of grace, we are miraculously changed. God works within us through the spiritual disciplines, the holy habits, not because they have power within them, themselves, but because they punish, position us beneath God's steady stream and flow of grace. Grace that transforms us and changes us. Therefore, we're challenged in scripture. In 2 Peter three eighteen: grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace is a beautiful thing. I pray that it will change your life if it hasn't already, and if it has, that you would relish its beauty today. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, we thank you so much for your grace, that which we don't deserve, but because of who you are, because you are rich in mercy, because of the great love with which you loved us, in kindness you have displayed your love through Christ that we might be mercifully saved, God, I pray for that one who's here today or maybe even watching online. Father, who knows that they're still in that previous state and they need to be transformed, God, by your grace, would you awaken their hearts, shock their heart with the defibrillators of grace, that they may recognize their need for you and see that need met in the person and work of Jesus. Through your kindness towards them, they may be saved. Father, for those who are here as we relish our salvation, help us not to ever forget or look past just how far God has rescued us from. Help us to not look past those who are lost around us, that we would recognize them in their current state and that we would be broken for them, that we might share the good news of Jesus with them. And God, may we never move past grace, but allow it through its steady stream from your goodness to us continue to transform us and to mold us into the likeness of Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit SCBTS.edu.